0: Exodus chapter 3. So I'm going to read those verses. We're going to look at uh, verses 1 to 14, and and then uh, we'll pray again, and then we'll get into it. So now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush, So he looked and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will turn now aside and see this great sight. Why does the bush not, why the bush does not burn? So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. Then he said, do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover he said I am the god of your father the god of Abraham the god of Isaac the god of Jacob and Moses hid his face and was afraid to look upon his god upon God and the Lord said I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters and I know their sorrows So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come now, therefore, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? So he said, I will certainly be with you, and this will be a sign uh, to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain." So Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord God of our fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And this is my memorial to all generations. Father, we pray that as we look at this section, that you'd help us to think about who you are and recognize how profound it is that you revealed yourself in this way. I pray God you'd help us to have hearts that want to know you as you are but also want to relate to you as you are and as you dictate to us that you want us to relate to you. Father, forgive us when we we limit these things to just an intellectual exercise where we just maybe want to try to get our heads around things but we're actually not responding to you as you are And as you've called us to. So I pray, Lord, that you would use, not just tonight, but this series. To help us to know that you are the God whom we can trust. And you're the God that we um, need to follow. Help us to understand that. Help us to do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know about you, but after this morning's message, uh, it it makes me almost nervous about getting into the Bible. Because I, I'm reminded, as, as Adam shared with us this morning, that, um, you know, God calls us to actually work out our faith. God calls us to actually live out uh, what we learn. And it's not enough to say, well, I believe, I understand this about God, and I believe this about God. We're called to actually work out, to respond to the God that has revealed himself to us. Now, what makes me comforted is what we see about the God of Scripture. The God of the Bible is a God that is trustworthy. He's a God that we, we can look at and we can think, yes, this is someone I can follow. This is someone I can trust. This is someone I can respond to. And, and as we get into the I Am statements in the Gospel of John, I, I hope that we see that the, the, the kinds of things He says about Himself, the kinds of things that Jesus says about Himself through those I Am statements, don't just show us that He is indeed God but that uh, shows us the kind of God that He is and how it is that He wants us to actually relate to Him. So I think that's important. I think it's important that we recognize that, you know, our our faith in God is not just a faith in in a group of ideas about who God is. It is that, but it's more than that. Faith in God, what God calls us to, saving faith, is, is trusting a person. It's trusting Him that He is as He says He is, And that uh, we are going to be, we're going to benefit from following him as he calls us to follow. Following him as he is. I mean, this is what uh, the author of Hebrews says, is the kind of faith that pleases God. God says, without faith it's impossible to please me. For he who comes to me must believe that I am, that is, I am as I've revealed myself to be. And that I am a rewarder of those who, what? Diligently seek me. God wants us to see him as he is, believe that he is as he's revealed himself to be, and seek him as such. Walk with him as such. Now, so there's three kind of main things I think that we're going to see today in in Exodus 3 uh, that will kind of set the foundation for how we recognize the I Am. God has revealed himself as the I Am. The first thing is we want to talk about him being the God of the living. If you drop down to verse 15, which I read... Uh, earlier where he, call, he talks about, he says to Moses for the second time in this section, he's the God of, of, of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He had said that earlier, didn't he, in, um, in verse 6. He says that basically, I am the God of the, uh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Now, the reason this is significant for us is because we know that Jesus, when Jesus was talking to the Sadducees, who didn't believe there was uh, the resurrection, believe there was life after death, that he quoted this verse, Exodus 3, 6. He quotes this verse and he basically says, God is not the God of the dead, but God of the living. Saying, look, this is the God who... He didn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Like when they were around, I was their God too. He says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That he's the God of the living. And so this means that being the God of the living, he's dealing with us. He's the God who actively deals with us now he 's dealing with us it 's not just a one time thing it 's not just a God that we kind of make a mental ascent to he 's dealing with us. and we see that in moses life don 't forget at this point, in, according to verse one, we see Moses tending the flock of, of jethro 's father in law which sounds like okay that 's cool he 's shepherding sheep. that makes sense again okay, that 's a, that's a good thing that'll be important later on in the I am uh, study. but it 's important to remember where he came from. you have to remember the story you 've seen the prince of Egypt, right? He was a prince in Egypt. He was uh, a Jewish boy who should have been condemned to death, but he was rescued by Pharaoh's daughter out of that, raised in Pharaoh's courts. He was a prince of Egypt. He was someone who knew what it was like to rule. But when God began to deal with his heart, of course, you know the story. He gets angry at the unjust treatment of his, of his brethren, the, the Jews. He kills somebody in, in haste. Uh, He gets scared because he knows it's going to turn out bad for him. So he runs away into the wilderness. Eventually uh, finds this guy, Jethro. Marries one of his daughters. And God humbles him for 40 years. God humbles him. This is important for us to understand because when we're talking about the God of the living, we're talking about the God who humbles us. He humbles his princes. He humbles people to prepare them to know him. To prepare them to be used by him. God's in the business of humbling us, of teaching us our place. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. So you want to click that for me? Thank you. It says this. God says to his people in general, not just to Moses, so he humbled you, allowing you to hunger, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know. That man shall not live by bread alone, but, by, uh, but man sh- lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. So he, it's a reference to, of course, the man in the wilderness. And I think Joe probably will talk more about that next, next time we're together. But there's a reality that, that God purposely led his people through the wilderness. He was humbling them. He was showing them. They needed to take him at his word. God does that to us. He, he brings us to this place of dependency. Why? Because he's the God of the living. He wants to have a, a real living relationship with us. It says in verse 2 that then, as a- Moses is here, he's been humble, he's in the wilderness. He's looking after sheep for his father-in-law. That this angel of the Lord appears to him in the flame of fire in the midst of a bush. And so what happens is he looks at this bush, and what does he notice? He thinks he sees this bush that's on fire, which uh, apparently was a kind of a common thing. It was a common for plants to just kind of uh, kind of catch on fire. There, there's a lot of oily plants out there in the desert. Uh, it, there could be reflection off a rock or struck by lightning. It wasn't that unusual to see something on fire out there, supposedly. But what was unusual, what was supernatural, was this bush was on fire, but it wasn't being consumed. And he's thinking, what is this? I gotta check this out. This, this fire that is in the bush, but not consuming the bush. Now, what does the Bible say about fire in relation to God? Hebrews chapter 12, do you guys remember? Ollie, you want to flip that for me again, buddy? <laughs> it says that our God is a consuming fire. Now think about this. Picture the burning bush. The angel of the Lord's there, gonna reveal God to Moses. But the bush isn't being consumed. But then God reveals himself as a consuming fire. So really, in a sense, we see God's this non-consuming, all-consuming fire. How can that be? Well, the, the thing that we're, we're meant to see here is that when, what Hebrews is talking about is this reality that we should be concerned about the holiness of God because God in his holiness, which we'll talk about more in a minute, he consumes all that's unholy. So what you have here is this great picture of a God who could consume it, or should consume that bush. He should consume everything that is less than he is, yet he can be present and still choose not to consume. What is that? It's called mercy. And Moses is blown away by the sight. He's blown away by the sight physically. How can there be something on fire yet not being consumed? But he'll be blown away later by the mercy of God. By the fact that God should consume us, but he doesn't. Now, the Bible says in the book of Malachi, For I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore, notice what he says, You are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. God never changes. He's always merciful. That's why we know if we're in covenant with Him, He's not going to break that covenant. He's not going to check us aside. So Moses has this sight, right? Okay, so the Lord then... Sees that he's curious, so he starts calling on Moses, Moses. Moses replies, I'm right here. And God says, verse 5, do not draw near to this place. Don't come any closer, Moses. Instead, he says, take off your sandals, take the sandals off your feet, for the place that you stand is holy ground. Now, this is interesting. Because he's basically saying, look, as a holy God, if you were to approach me, you would be consumed. So I want you to take your sandals off your feet. Now if you think about that, if you take sandals off your feet, you're going to just have dirty feet. So how does that make you holy? The point is, is that where God is, wherever God's presence is, He makes that place holy. I heard a really great metaphor. Uh, I got this from uh, a ministry called The Bible Project. Look it up on YouTube. They have some amazing little films that they do, The Bible Project. And they're talking about this metaphor. The sun is a metaphor for the holiness of God. And if you think about it, the sun in our solar system is unique. It's, it's, you might say it's holy. It's, it's completely distinct from everything else in our solar system. And so it's, it's the this, this, this sun is a, a great thing. It's a good thing. It keeps us in the right rotation. It keeps us in that gravitational pull where we're supposed to be. It sends light and energy our way. So all life is on our planet because of the sun and our position to the sun. But the thing is, if you get too close to the sun, what happens? You die. Because the sun itself, nothing can kind of live on the sun itself without dying. Nothing less than the sun, with the sun's makeup is, can, can live. But not only that, it's not just the sun itself that has that power, but all the area around the sun. There's something about the sun itself that, that affects everything around it, so that even around it is dangerous. And so when we talk about the holiness of God, when we talk about this, this living God, the God of the living who is holy. We're talking about someone who is not just good, but he's dangerously good. He's so pure and so perfect that to approach him in any way other than he declares that we should approach him means for us destruction. So he's wanting Moses to see that. Moses, look. But the good news is this. The good news is that any, any one or anything that God approaches or that where God makes his presence to dwell, where he makes it uh, uh, able to handle his presence, you might say, anything that God makes as an abode for himself, he makes that thing holy. So he comes into a bush. What happens? The ground around the bush is made holy. So he says to Moses, don't come near. This is holy ground. Now, this is good news for us. It's good news for us because what does the Bible say about us? Look at Ephesians chapter 1. Quitting from the New Living Translation, I like the way it paraphrases, check it out. Even before God made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ. Notice, to be holy and without fault in His eyes. God chose us for that purpose. He's a holy God. If we're going to be with Him, He needs to make us holy. Look what it says. And now you Gentiles have also heard the truth. The good news that God saves you. And when you believe in Christ, he identified you as his own by giving you the what spirit? Holy Spirit, whom he promised long ago. Now we all, hopefully here, have an understanding that the reason God can forgive us and can declare us holy is because of what Christ accomplished, right? His death on the cross pays for our sins. His resurrection guarantees our justification or, or rendered innocent. And so what it basically is also, it allows us, listen, to be vessels of the Holy Spirit. So that God the Spirit can dwell in us. What happens when God chooses a place to reveal His presence? That thing becomes holy. Do you understand what I'm saying? Do you follow me? So this is actually good news for us. So Moses is seeing this, obviously not having this kind of theological understanding yet. But he's seeing this and he's thinking, what does this mean? This holy God is, is saying, I can't come any closer. Then, of course, he reveals himself as this living God. And it says at the end of verse 6, And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. Now, one of the things that worries me most about my Christian experience is how easy I can stop fearing God. It's, It's concerning to me how easy I can become irreverent, just kind of treat the things of God like they're... Casual or easily known. The Bible says in the book of, of Proverbs, it's going to be on the screen when Ollie clicks the button. <laughs> on the book of Proverbs it says, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. If we want to grow in wisdom, wisdom being living life skillfully, the beginning of that, the foundation for that is the fear of God. It is recognizing that He's indeed worthy of our reverence. That we should be Aware of the fact that we cannot just uh, simply approach him unless we are sure that he's made us holy. He has to make us holy if we're going to approach him. He has to declare us holy if we're going to approach him. So this living God reveals himself to Moses in this way. But there's something else about this God that he that, uh, he wants Moses to see, right? And so the Lord said, verse 7, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because they're taskmasters, for I know their sorrows, so I have come down to deliver them. Now, now do, you, do you get this? God's saying to Moses, of course, Moses knows this. Moses saw how his people, the Israelites, were being oppressed in Egypt. That's kind of why he got mad and killed the guy. Uh, but he left. He thought, you know, there's nothing I can do about this. I'm going to die. So he leaves He probably thinks this is my life. I'm not going to be a prince of Egypt, I'm just going to take care of sheep, this is all I am. So when God reveals himself to, to Moses, he wants Moses to understand, look, these are my people, and I'm the God who's going to redeem them. So when we're talking about this God, this I am, this one who reveals himself as the I am, he's the God who redeems his people. Now why does he do this? Because he cares about their suffering. God sees what they're going through and he cares. I love the fact that the way God says this to Moses. He doesn't just say, hey, I've heard that these guys are hurting, so I'm going to just send you. He doesn't kind of make it that quick. He says, look, I have surely seen. I have heard their cry. I know their sorrow. And it's like he wants Moses to, to understand, look, I'm feeling what they're feeling. I understand what they're going through. And I don't want them to be slaves anymore. I want them to be free. I see the result of their slavery. And I want them to be free from it. Now, what are we slaves to before we, know, before we know Christ? Who are we slaves to? Or what are we slaves to? Sin. We're slaves to sin. Do you think God looks at us and our slavery to sin, and he looks at us and he goes, stupid people. Well, bummer for you. Or does he hear our cries and we say, God, deliver me from this? Does he have compassion on us? Does he want to redeem us? Absolutely. He cares for his people. Listen to what the psalmist says in Psalm 22. The psalmist said, For he has not despised, no abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him, but when he cried to him, he heard. Now, sometimes we, we, we see verses like that, and I think we make the mistake of thinking that's only for those who are victims of sin. In other words, those who are being sinned against, not for those who perpetrate sin. But if you hate that you've perpetrated sin as well, if you hate the consequence of that, and you want deliverance, you want to change. Do you think God turns his, despises or abhors that? If we're afflicted over our own sin and we turn to God, do you think He abhors that? Absolutely not. He shows mercy. In fact, the Bible tells us about Jesus in Hebrews four fifteen, right? For we do not have a high, cannot, a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. He understands that we have needs. He wants to bring our redemption. He's provided for our redemption. The God who redeems His people. This is really important because I hope as we see, if we're, as we're talking about these things, we're beginning to see maybe how these things might click into what Jesus says about Himself. I hope it's making us think, yeah, okay, this sounds like God with Israel, but what about Jesus with us? I hope we're beginning to see this might click in with us. Now, he says he wants to, to bring them into this new land, uh, a land that, uh, that he called them to, and of course, you could get into the rest of the Old Testament and see how that worked out. But also, it's important to recognize, he says in verse 9, he says, look, therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel have come to me, I've seen their oppression, he says, in which the Egyptians oppressed them. But he says, come now, therefore, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, children of Israel, out of Egypt. This is important. God redeems his people, right? But he redeems his people in such a way that people go, wow, I can't believe he actually was able to do it that way. God's going to use Moses and, of course, do supernatural things through Moses and in spite of Moses. God's going to do this. He's going to deliver his people in a way that shows, I can do this. I can get you out of any situation. Now, Exodus is great. If you you haven't read the book of Exodus, I really encourage you to read through the book of Exodus because it's amazing to see what God's doing uh, to bring his people out of Egypt. Sometimes it's hard to read when you read about the plagues and stuff, but it's also amazing when you understand a lot of the plagues that came to the Egyptians from God uh, had a cor- corresponded with the gods, the false gods that they worshipped. And it's amazing to see how often Pharaoh hardens his heart and hardens his heart, and finally God says, okay, you want a hard heart? Boom, there you go. And, and God hardens Pharaoh's heart. But the point is, he does it in such a way that No one can doubt that God is able to deal with anything that His people might put up with or might be tempted with or might be uh, oppressed by. God redeems His people because He can. There's nothing, there's no God in this world that might tempt you or deceive you or try to trip you up that God has not provided for, that God cannot deliver you from. That's the point. That's the thing He wants us to see. Now, Look at Jeremiah 50. God says, therefore, the Lord of hosts says, the children of Israel were oppressed, along with the children of Judah, and all who took them captive have held them fast. They have refused to let them go. This is not talking about what happened in Egypt. This is talking about when God's people had to be chastened and they were sent to Babylon. But there's an application here. Listen. But God says, their Redeemer is strong. The Lord of hosts is his name he will thoroughly plead their case that he will give them rest to the land and disquiet the inhabitants of Babylon. So God says, later on, after he delivers them out of Egypt and they rebel against him and they fall into sin again and they have to be uh, chastened again, what happens? They're in this place where they're oppressed again and God says, but I'm still their redeemer and I'm still going to deliver them. Now you might know this, but Babylon is often a picture of the world. The world system that is contrary to God. So look at this, Revelation chapter 19. God says, After these things I heard a loud voice and a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments because he has judged the great harlot, identified as Babylon in those chapters, who corrupted the earth with her fornication. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. The reason I'm bringing this out is when we talk about God's redeeming us, it's not just about hey, getting us to have a nicer place to live, as it was for the uh, for the Israelites in a sense. It's really about redeeming us from our sin, redeeming us from the sinful world, a sinful world that will often hate us for following Jesus. That's the whole point that He's trying to make in Revelation. God's going to deliver us. God's our redeemer. So, when when God says to Moses, this is my plan, I want to use you to do this, what happens? Verse uh, 11, Moses says to God, "Uh, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? God, uh, okay, I, I can't do this. Maybe 40 years ago, when I still had the confidence, I wasn't afraid to kill somebody, you know, I was a bit younger and... And had more experience in Pharaoh's court and so on. But not now. There's no way I can do this now, God. I can't do this. This is exactly where God wanted him to be. God wanted him to be humble, so he knew he couldn't do it. Who am I? So God says to him in verse 12, listen, I will certainly be with you. Then he says, here's the sign. You'll know that I sent you when you come back to this mountain and worship. To me, that's not a very good sign. (laughs) Okay, when you if you survive when you survive this whole thing, then you know it was me. Ah, when I survive, what happens if I don't? You know, but God wants him to know that Look, Moses, there's something I'm doing here, and all you really need to have the confidence that I'm doing this is to know that I'm with you, that my presence is sufficient. Now, does that sound familiar? What did Jesus say to his disciples right before he sent them to heaven? What did he say? Behold, I am with you always. That's what he said. Now, so we see that this God who reveals himself as the I am, he's the God of the living, he's the God who redeems his people, but also, listen, he's the God who reveals himself, and he reveals himself as the ever-present God. He's going to be with Moses through this whole process. Again, listen to what the psalmist has to say. God says, the psalmist says in in Psalm 46:1. That God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. This is not just speaking about the fact that God's omnipresent. There's no place where God doesn't dwell. Obviously, God's here. It's talking about his active presence. When God shows up in a place, when God shows up in a situation to intervene and to help. This is the kind of God he is. This is the kind of God he wants to reveal himself to be. Now, this is important because as we talk about the I am statements, as we talk about what Jesus says, how, what Jesus says about God, how, how his life and his words reveal who God is. That it's not, again, just for an intellectual understanding. It's so that we could experience the ever-present God. We can know what it's like. To have Jesus in our life. Working in our life. Not just an idea that, that helps us have purpose or understanding. But we actually know God is intervening and living in our lives. This is why the psalmist also says in Psalm 145. The Lord is near to all who call upon him. To all who call upon him in truth. That's why the Puritan said pray until you pray. We can say our prayers. And that's, that's a good thing. But God wants us to pray call upon him in truth. God, you're real. You hear me. You're listening. You're going to respond. I have your ear. God's revealed himself as that kind of a God. Now, quickly, these last couple of verses, and this is where it really connects to the I am statements. So Moses says to God, Indeed, I'm going to come to the children of Israel. They're going to say, Uh, Who sent you? What's his name? What's the name of this God who sent you to deliver us? And God says to Moses, I am who I am. Now, this could be translated, I will be who I will be. Uh, And and the reason that that might be significant is, in one sense, uh, we believe that 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 would have been that way in Hebrew because it shows that, that God's God's always, always is. And there's not a way to kind of say God presently is in the Hebrew. But in the English, we can say that. We can say, I am, presently I am. Now, this is interesting too, because I've heard, I heard, in fact, I heard this on Radio 2, one of those kind of thought for the day things on Radio 2, uh, where some lady came on, some some uh, some vicar or something like that, and and she's talking about this verse, and she says, I am who I am. And basically her her take on this was, see, God said this to Moses because he, he's like saying, Look, it doesn't matter who I am. I just I am who I am, it doesn't matter. You just do what I want you to do. Don't worry about who I am. And so she kind of her spin on this was, it doesn't matter who God is, as long as we're doing what we know we think God really wants us to do. And I was screaming at the radio, What? How can you think that? It's actually just the direct opposite. God is wanting Moses to understand something. He's wanting Moses to get something about himself. That's why he goes on to say, listen, he says, You shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now this phrase, I am. When God says, I am, this is God revealing himself as the self-existent one. And what we mean by that is that God uniquely is, again, this is part of God's holiness, God's uniqueness. Remember how we We've talked about the, what the glory of something is. We've talked about this before. The, we talk about the glory of God or the glory of whatever. The, uh, the glory is a, a unique value of somebody, you know, or, or something. And so when we talk about the glory of God, we're talking about his unique value. What makes God God that no one else is like him? And the Bible's really clear there is none like the God of Israel. What makes him unique? God here is revealing what makes him unique. There is none who is self existent. To be self existent means this, okay? that means you are dependent upon nothing else or no one else for your existence or your character. That all that you are, you are just because you are. You are because you have determined yourself to be so. Now, no one else can say that. You are not who you are because you determine yourself to be who you are. As much as that might sound like a self-help book that would sell. <laughs> you are who you are because of the DNA of your parents and their parents and their parents before you and all the way back to Adam you are who you are you are who you are because of the the circumstances that you live in your upbringing has affected who you are it's affected how you think how you view things your perspectives it's even affected how tall or short you are this is why you know when they do studies of twins one they can be identical twins and one twin can be old, uh, taller than the other how does that happen? because they have different diets and such if they're separated Different habits. How can you have the exact DNA and end up being different sizes? Well, because environment affects us. So you are you, who you are because of your environment. But God is who he is because he is who he is. He's self-determining. So that he defines and determines his own existence and his own character. Nothing else and no one else does. You've heard people probably say, someone may have said to you, Okay, you say God created the universe. Who created God? Nobody. That's the point. The whole point is, he's the self existent one. And either you have to believe in a self existent universe or a self existent God. And if you believe in a self existent universe, that makes no sense by what we observe. Because we observe everything has to come from something, everything has to have a cause. Unless there is what? An uncaused cause. Who is? I am. That's the point that if there is a God he would have to be this way that's the point that's what's why this is so profound you can't make this stuff up you can't think this has to be God saying this is who I have to be and Moses is like whoa how does this work and he's going to see how it works as things go on now Moses writes a psalm about God in Psalm 90 this will be on the screen shortly oh really? oh really? Oh, sorry. My bad. So I'm going to turn there and read it to you really quick, because it should be on the screen, but obviously I didn't put it on there. See, this is the reason I have PowerPoint and stuff, because it takes me so long to find things in the Scripture. Here it is. Psalm of uh, of Moses, Psalm 90. Listen. Moses writes, The Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or, uh, or, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. From everlasting to everlasting. There's something about God being the eternally existent one That makes him unique from anything else. There's no one like him. Now, it's important that we understand that we only have a couple options with this. There's only a couple options. One is in the beginning, dirt, matter, energy, that the physical universe has always existed somehow, or in the beginning, God. There really isn't any other options. I guess you could say, in the beginning, both somehow, but it still doesn't change the the reality. See, God reveals himself as this one who's always existed to Moses. He reveals himself as this one who is the living God. He's not a God who just kind of deals with those that are dead or... or, or um, I'm not a God who only is in our our minds as we live this life. He's the God of the living. He talks about life after death because He's the eternal God. He's the God who redeems His people. He doesn't leave us to just kind of get on with it. He wants to intervene in the lives of those that are His, that are in covenant with Him. And He's the God who has to reveal Himself. And when He reveals Himself, He makes it clear, look, I am who I've determined myself to be. I'm the self-existent one. Now, so, leave Exodus and go with me quickly to John chapter eight, and we're going to close with this. So, in John chapter eight, Jesus is here having this kind of debate with, um, with these Pharisees, religious leaders. And it's, you pick it up in verse uh, forty-eight. The Jews answer Jesus. They're, they're they're listening to what he said about him being uh, calling God his father and such, and. And the Jews it says, verse forty Then the Jews answered and said to, to Jesus, Did we not rightly say that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? And Jesus says, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonour me. And I do not seek my own glory, there is one who seeks and judges. In other words, God seeks and judges glory. More more, more sincerely, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never die. So the Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham is dead and the prophets. And you say, If anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who is dead and the prophets who are dead? Who do you make yourself out to be? This is what they want to know. Who do you think you are, Jesus, by saying these things? And so Jesus says, Look, if I honor myself, my honor is nothing. If it is my father who honors me, of whom you say that he is your God. Yet you have not known him, but I know him, and I say, I do not if I say I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word, and your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. Then the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Look what he says. Jesus said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, what does he say? I am. Not I was. He could prove self-existence it was just I was. But he doesn't say before Abraham was. He says, I am. I am. See, these guys had a problem with Jesus because they, they recognized rightly... That he was making himself equal to be God by saying that God was his father. That he was the son. They recognized that he was making himself equal with God. That's why it says in verse 59 that they took up stones to throw them at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple and he went through, going through the midst of them and he passed by. He escapes. But he wanted these guys to recognize who he was. He wasn't trying to exalt himself. He wasn't trying to show off or brag. He's wanting them to see, look, if you knew who God was, you'd recognize God in me. You'd recognize me as the I Am. Now, we're going to see in several different places in John's Gospel, not counting that, where Jesus makes these statements about I Am. And it doesn't just show us how, it doesn't just kind of um, reiterate the same thing about him being the self-existent one it, it reveals the character of the self-existent one Remember we, we talk about him being self-existent he determines and defines his own character it's going to define his character this is the character of God that we see through the person of Jesus who he is what God is like and how God intends us to relate to him the I am